Welcome to our sixth episode of Church Historia. We've been so grateful to have you listening with us and have loved exploring Southern Christianities with you. And as we march toward the end of this first season of Church Historia, we'll be covering some subjects that are often used as ways to debate and divide. Church history is filled with difficult subjects, we all know this, and we feel it's important that we study them so we can be better prepared for the future. This week, we'll use the United Methodist debate over the inclusion and ordination of LGBTQIA people as a launching point to explore the religious experiences of the queer community in the South. This particular conversation can often be a hard one to have, and we'll take a historical look at how this community has been a part of the South's heritage and how this history can broaden our understanding of Southern Christianities. Let's dive in. Let's do it. All right. All right. Methodists. The Methodists. The Methodists. This is a good chance for us to talk about Scarrett Bennett for a moment. Yes. And the historic significance of the place in which we are recording these episodes. Yeah. Two people formed Scarrett Bennett. In the late 1800s, they started a school for women in the Methodist tradition before women could get ordained, this was the Scarrett Bennett School was kind of a way that they could go learn about the Bible. In the early 1900s, it moved to Nashville, and they built this campus that is a few words. I don't have words to describe how beautiful this campus is, right in the heart of Nashville. And then it was one of the first private uh, universities to desegregate. Since then, Scarrett Bennett as an organization, as a nonprofit, has worked to uphold the voices of women and people of color, keeping in line with that long, long legacy. And they're also a wedding venue, which is really awesome. And Steph got married there. And so today we get to talk a little bit about the tradition from which they are born. And there's a lot that goes into it. And where Scarrett Bennett is located, it's next to Vanderbilt University mm. as well. And Vanderbilt originally started as a Methodist college for training ministers and I think was originally called Methodist College or Methodist College of the Southeast and received a huge endowment from Cornelius Vanderbilt and eventually the university split from the Methodist Episcopal Church as it was known at the time over a question about board membership and how many how much say the Methodist Church got in board membership for the university and when they separated from the Methodist Episcopal Church, they became Vanderbilt University in honor of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Since his initial endowment, I think it was something like a million dollars that he had initially invested in the university. Hmm. So we are surrounded by the legacy of the Methodist tradition. The upper room is located a couple of blocks away. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of other United Methodist centers here in Nashville, the Cokesbury Publishing House, United Methodist Publishing House is here in Nashville. And and one of the things that we felt was important to cover in this podcast was the South's multifaceted relationship with the LGBTQIA plus community. 
And the Methodists kind of in this moment are, are grappling and debating over the ordination, marriage, and acceptance of LGBTQIA plus people within that tradition. And so we felt like, given that we are surrounded by all mm. of these Methodist places, that starting our conversation with kind of a recap of what's facing the United Methodists today was a good launching point for us to talk about the presence of queer people in the South and how that has interacted with mm. Christianity in the South. So the Methodists are ruled by the Book of Discipline and the Book of Resolutions, which are kind of the, the governing documents, the charter consti- charters or constitutions, if you will, of the Methodists. And General Conference is the highest legislative body of the Methodists, and General Conference has the right to revise the Book of Discipline and the Book of Resolutions. And so General Conference typically meets every four years, but they can be called to a special session if needed. And so that's what happened last year in February of 2019. There was a special session called in St. Louis, Missouri, to talk about the way forward and for the Methodist Church to set forth to to debate and then make a resolution about their stance in the ordination of marriage of and acceptance of LGBTQIA persons within the Methodist tradition. Prior to that session, the, as, as the rules have stood historically, United Methodist pastors cannot perform gay weddings. Openly queer people are not allowed to be ordained. And there is kind of a murky congregation by congregation dependent level of acceptance of queer persons within just general congregational life. Mm-hmm. So, which is an interesting example of the Methodist. There are, you talk to different Methodists and they are very, they stand in very different places on a lot of things. Yes. There's a wide, it's probably true within other denominations as well, but I think I've spent m- most of my, my time talking with the Methodists about this. There's a wide range of, opinions on theological issues, social issues, political issues within the Methodist church. Even sort of historically, it has this interesting mix of being both really low church and really high church and being very structured. Pastors have to, you don't necessarily have to have a divinity degree, but you have to have taken a certain number of courses in order to qualify for ordination. You have to write papers for ordination committees that are reviewed. So you have they're very much an emphasis on an education of the clergy. And at the same time, you also have this really strong camp revival tradition that is very much movement of the spirit driven. And so Methodism has always had this variation within itself. And that absolutely applies here within, within this conversation. There's been, within the United Methodist Church globally, and then also regionally, in the South, a variety of opinions on each of these topics about ordination, marriage, and and general acceptance. And so in light of that variety of opinion, the Council of Bishops called for the special conference, and they also commissioned a group called the Commission on the Way Forward, which is a group of people representing lots of different opinions, also positions. So it had cisgendered heteronormative 
folks on the committee as well as queer folks on the committee and people from different countries. And, and they sure to have a very diverse committee to kind of come together as a group, pray, get to know each other and really try to figure out a, a way forward hmm. for the Methodists because th- this issue is becoming one that is becoming very divisive for the church. And so the conference was called in February of 2019 to debate this. The way the Commission for the Way Forward did put together a proposal. There were also a couple of other plans put forward, a one-church plan, a traditionalist plan, and there was much, much debate about it. At the end of the day, the traditionalist plan passed by a vote of 53% to 47%. It's really close. It was a very, very close vote. feels like there was perhaps a strong sense that some, some resolution to this issue needed to happen at that conference. They couldn't be unresolved and kind of continue the open question. And so this outcome, I think, surprised a number of people because the traditionalist plan both reaffirms the existing Methodist stance about not performing gay weddings and not allowing queer clergy, but also increases the punishments around clergy who are found Mm. to be doing those things and requires, puts in stricter controls around when people are ordained that they have to swear that they will uphold the full book of discipline. And it uh. it's actually, so in, in some ways, it's slightly more restrictive than sort of hmm. where they were. And this is a plan that this Way Forward Committee all agreed to put forth? No, this was oh. one of the alternate. I see. Proposals. Okay. Yeah. So there were three. One of them was the Way Forward one, which was the one that I think most people expected to passed because it was this ecumenical effort and and generally had going into the conference people had thought it had the most backing it ended up that it there it did not there was resistance there and huh. ultimately kind of when the final vote was called in the the final stages of the of the conference the traditionalist plan was the one that was passed so it took effect January 1st of 2020 and so this caused tremendous amount of of controversy and just really sent a ripple through the United Methodist Church because there were churches that were very excited about this ruling that felt very strongly that was the right way forward. And there were a number of congregations who did not. And so the question has started to come up of, is this a big enough issue for the United Methodist Church to schism over and to break over? And if so, what does that breaking look like? The physical land and buildings of Methodist churches are not owned by individual congregations. They're owned by the conference. So when if a church were to split, it's not just as simple as saying, we sever our alliance, you lose your building, your land, pastoral benefits and pensions and things like that are paid through the conference level. So there's, there's a lot of money and property legality that huh. make— sort of walking away a a complicated question. So their regular general conference was supposed to happen in May of 2020. It happens every four years, so it was supposed to happen in May. And they were going to discuss the protocol of reconciliation and grace through separation, which Hmm. was about how do you create structures within the United Methodist Church to perhaps allow for some variation of opinion? 
how do you create ways for people to leave without it resulting in bitterness? Because hmm. there's, there's a lot of implications on budget and structure and church appropriations. So congregations will, part of their donations go into a general kind of general fund. So larger Methodist churches can then help out smaller churches financially, oh. which you know, helps when you have just huge variation in congregation size. I know there's a Methodist church just down the road from me that I think has 25 members, mm. you know, three or four families. And part of why they're able to survive is because they do have a connection back into this larger body that has more funds than maybe that specific congregation could supply. So splitting is super complicated. General conference got postponed because of covid to 2021. So as of today, I'd say this is still a very unresolved question for the United Methodists. And really there's this looming question of, is this worthy of split and worthy of schism? Because people feel so strongly about these questions. And do they stay? Do they go? Do they stay and resist? And if so, how do you do that in a way that reflects your Christian values in a way that does not cause further harm and bitterness and dissension. There has been the idea that the church as a whole and needs to start talking about this and what does it look like. And so in this one thread, the Methodist thread, it's been interesting on the outskirts to watch that happening. You know, and I, I really appreciate putting together a committee of people within that tradition that fall on either side, you know, and it seems like are on all the spectrums of it. And so I think there's a lot, there's a lot that we can learn from watching it even get started. And then of course, the outworkings of it and the continuing ongoing conversation is very important. Absolutely. And if we sort of narrow in to focus on on the South, I mean, we could certainly have a, a global conversation about LGBTQIA plus conclusion in the church as a whole. We could have that conversation with the United States, but we're focusing on Southern Christianities this season. So to to narrow in there, you know, the South as a whole has a history of excluding those groups of people, of not supporting things like gay marriage. The when gay marriage was legalized in the United States, the whole question about whether or not the county clerk had to sign marriage licenses if right. they were against her personal religious beliefs, I believe was centered in Kentucky. And so I think that is that is probably the narrative that that people know about the history of queer folks in the South and particularly that intersection with Christianity. But there are some other parts of that history that I think are worth us highlighting because as we've been talking about throughout the season, Southern Christianity and Christianities are not monochromatic or monolithic. And so the first gay-affirming church in the United States was actually founded in Atlanta in 1946. In the um, South. In the South. Hmm. It was founded by George Hyde, who was a former Catholic seminarian, and the church itself was connected with the Orthodox Catholic Church, which is kind of a sub-branch oh of, <laughs> of a number of things. But it was a, it was a self-running Orthodox Catholic Church in 1946. Wow. And after the Stonewall riots in 1969 and sort of the 1970s push towards gay rights, there were more forming, affirming congregations and councils that were starting to form 
largely centered out of LA, the United Church of Christ, the UCC, the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches, the Episcopal Church USA, which is a branch off of the more traditional Episcopal Church. But while a lot of that activity is centered in LA and California, Troy Perry, who founded the Universal Fellowship of Metropolitan Community Churches, was from the Florida Georgia line and wow. moved ultimately moved out to LA. And the Episcopal Church USA was founded by Louis Crew in rural Georgia and has over 60 chapters in the United States. My goodness. So while we might think of New York or LA when we think about the 1970s and gay rights, there were sort of Southern transplants in those places, but also as we see with the Episcopal Church USA, that movement was here in the South yeah. as well. And if we kind of return to the Methodists, you know, 2019 is not the first time that Methodists have had these conversations about the inclusion of, of queer folks. There are cases of, this, this has come up before, particularly with some Methodist pastors kind of going rogue, quote-unquote mm. rogue, and performing same-sex marriages before it was civilly or denominationally legal. Huh. So Reverend Jeremy Creech is maybe one of the best-known um, of those, those folks. He was a Methodist minister in Raleigh, North Carolina. So Creech had been a local leader around gay rights and gay inclusion from the late eight, 1980s in Raleigh and in North Carolina, He's involved in the Raleigh Religious Network for Gay and Lesbian Equality. And so this was kind of a well-known position of his. In 1988, the United Methodist Church voted against the ordination of queer people. And then in 1996, they voted against the celebration of union ceremonies for gay couples. That's that a fancy way to say receptions or weddings. Well, weddings. weddings. Okay. So at okay. this point, it wasn't, it still wasn't civilly legal, but it was, I see. so it would have been right. a kind of purely religious. Yeah, ritual. So civil, but civil not marriages civil. were, yeah. or civil unions were legal, but this was pre-marriage. Gotcha. So it was, I think, the celebration of those Got civil it. unions, but within, within the church life. Yeah. So within this context of the Methodist church, making those decisions. We have Reverend Jimmy Creech, and in resistance to these votes by the UMC Church as a whole, in 1997, he conducted a holy union ceremony for a lesbian couple at a UMC church in Nebraska. Hmm. And so he was brought before kind of the church court, if you will, for violation of the Book of Discipline, because what he had done was going against the ruling in 1996, and he was acquitted. That did not stop him, however, from officiating gay weddings. And in 1999, he married a lesbian couple in North Carolina and, again, was brought before the Church Disciplinary Committee and was found guilty of doing that and, as such, was stripped of his ministerial credentials and of his pastoral status. So he essentially was no longer allowed to be a pastor or hold hmm. a church position within the United Methodist Church. And that caused kind of a, a lot of controversy and, and protest within the, within the Methodist Church. So this conversation we're seeing in 2019 and 2020 has been going on within the Methodist Church itself for a number of years. And the resistance and opposition to the church's position of excluding LGBTQIA 
people from marriage and ordination has been being protested within the denomination for a number of years. And some of those efforts have been centered in the South. Hmm. Some of the other sort of history about queer folks in the South is the, the creation of support groups for people and families who are navigating that intersection between queerness and faith, because that can be a difficult navigation, not only for queer individuals, but also for their families yeah. as well. And so some of the best known organizations that do that is one's called One Partners in Faith, which was founded by Stephen Baines, who is a Southern minister or Southern Baptist minister who was ejected from his congregation in South Carolina in 1995 when his congregation leaders found out that he was gay. Hmm. So he was a gay pastor who lost or who, like Jimmy Creech, was sort of stripped of his ministerial status. Another organization is Soul Force, which was run by Mel White, who was originally from California, but interestingly was a former speechwriter for Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. Uh, huh. And of had a, a changing in direction and, and started this support group. So all of this to say there is a multi, multifaceted history of queerness in the South and queer and a multifaceted queer history of the South. Southern Christianities have had a variety of responses, often all founded within their understanding of the Christian tradition, that mm-hmm. a lot of these folks who are advocating for the inclusion of queer people within the life of the church are doing so from an understanding that they have of what God calls us to be. Similarly, the groups that are calling for the exclusion of queer people from congregational life and church community are also doing so based off of their understanding of of scriptural text. So Mm. it's one of the things I think makes this issue particularly difficult within the church is that people are looking at the same sacred text and are coming to understand it very differently. There are about 3.6 million LBGTQIA adults living in the South, which is more than any other region in the United States. Hmm. 40% of LGBTQ people in the South are also people of color. Roughly one out of every three LGBTQ adults in the United States lives in the South. These people are also people of faith. So data from the Public Relations Research Institute shows that about 55% of LGBTQ Southerners are religiously affiliated. And of the United States LGBTQ population, 42% of LGBTQ Southerners are Christian compared to 38% outside the South. Queer folks are a part of Mm -hmm. church life, whether those churches are affirming or not, whether people are aware or not, queer people have been and continue to be part of congregational life. If someone who's listening to this that may not be a Christian and or may not be a Southerner may be surprised to hear that there are that many conversations of reconciliation happening in the South or that there are that many attempts with the support groups, with the Methodist tradition, of course, that's a tradition as, you know, it, the whole country, right? That's not just in the South. I'm encouraged to hear about these conversations of reconciliation because you're right. This group of people, they're present and they are contributing to our church community and our church families. 
this gets complicated in many ways, as we're seeing specifically with the Methodist conversation. There are complications that when different people are looking at the same scriptural texts can draw different conclusions, and it's not easy. But we can't deny the fact that this is a group of people that for a long time have been contributing to the life of the church. Yeah, and I think that that's an important thing to name is that, you know, and we see this in the the statistics today as much as we like to bemoan how post-Christian our world is and, you know, the United States is. Over half of the LGBT community in the South, which is a third of the LGBT community in the United States, identifies religiously, and 42% of them are Christians. And so they are part of the life of the church, and they are contributing and bringing their gifts and their service and their witness Mm. to, to congregational life, whether other folks are aware or not that that's what's going on, that is what is happening. And I think that we need to name that contribution and honor it. Church Historia is Stephanie Fulbright, our historian, and me, Leslie Eiler-Thompson, The music in today's episode is one of Stephanie's favorite hymns and is called One Bread, One Body. It was beautifully played by Andrea Yoey. You can find more information about this episode and listen to all other episodes of Church Historia at churchhistoria.com.